0: We're going to talk there again this morning. I remember being in middle school, and that's when you first start getting some philosophical chops. You start asking existential questions like, what's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why do I have to do homework? Stuff like that. That's what it really boils down to. You start having to do homework, you think, why do I need to learn this stuff? Was is it going to have any practicality in my life? But I do remember thinking about purpose. You know, to what end? What's the good of all this? Is it, I've always sort of been a fatalist. Because I'm melancholy. That's my temperament. I'm a melancholy. I'm a very, I'm an introverted person. The greatest time for me is 20 feet up in a tree, in a hammock, where nobody can find me. But no longer. For some reason, the bugs are worse than they were, you know, 30-something years ago. So I can't figure that out. <laughs> There's no place to hide anymore. So now it's inside with the A.C. with a picture of the outside. That's how it works. And so I've always tended to lean toward the, you know, the negative pessimism. But I learned to put on the positive attitude on the outside. Smile. Yeah, things are great. How are you doing? Good to see you. Why? Because you can sell more cars that way. I'm being serious. It's a salesman thing. It's what you're taught. Put on a smile. Put on a happy face. I mean, you think about it. You walk into a place of business and the person sitting there, welcome to my business. I mean, you know, you think you're going to work with the mob or you're somebody's in a bad mood. But when the gospel is at the center of our focus, that stuff really does fade away. It doesn't change our temperament. It doesn't change the way we're wired, but it does change our outlook. And I'll be straight with you, without getting into all of these things that don't really matter, it, the Word of God helps me see that life in its totality is worthless outside the glory of Christ. I'm going to say that again. The Word of God helps me see that life in its totality is worthless. Every aspect and experience of life is worthless if it's not found within the glory of Christ. Now, sadly, we live in a culture where, quote, Christian living and Christianity is mainstay. For the most part. I mean, I do have friends that are just staunch atheists and agnostics, and I do have people who are really rigid in some of their historical ideologies concerning faith, religion, deity, etc. And they're very intelligent. They they, they have a lot of good arguments. But for the most part, everybody I know has some sense of, yeah, I believe in God. Yep, I believe in Jesus. Don't know which one, if you were to ask them. Can't really define it. The God of Grandma, the God of Gandalf, the God of whoever, but everybody smiled when I said that. uh, But not the God of the Bible. So, the God of the Bible, his revelation to his people is the Word of God. The revelation of God comes only through the Word of God, and the sight to see him through that revelation is a spiritual thing. It's not an an academic endeavor. It is something that God does in the mind called regeneration and repentance. That God makes new and changes the disposition of the thinking inside the person. And so when we are able to look at the Word, and you've heard me say this, if I go a day... If I go a half a day without contemplating scripture, I, fall, I find myself sinking. I sink because I'm observant. I'm very observant. I'm hypervigilant. It's a disease. It is a mental condition. It's not something to say, oh, James is very observant. It's not good. I see everything. And because I see everything, I can find nothing. Ask my wife. Ketchup's right there in the left-hand drawer of the There's everything in here. can't find anything. But only when the Word of God is in front of us are we able to truly become myopic, narrow-minded, put blinders on and see. But the problem is we're not in the Scripture enough to see over and over again to the point and to the depths that the Spirit of God is carrying us and our worldview. Our worldview has been developed by the culture of Christianity by the culture of evangelicalism, by the culture of religion, not the culture of divine revelation. Because there is no such thing as the culture of divine revelation. Divine revelation is given to the individual and then to the individuals collectively as the church. And it doesn't change. Theological ideas change. Theological interpretation changes. But beloved if there's a manifold expression or if there's numerous ways to look at things, they could all be wrong. And we're all looking for joy. We're all looking for purpose. Beloved, why are we even here this morning? Are we here so that we can feel like in our heart, you know what, I'm doing my spiritual duty, I'm doing my Christian duty, the Lord's going to bless me, the Lord's going to bless my family, the Lord's going to bless because I'm in the building. Well, beloved, before we used this as a place of worship, we had a tenant in here... And she sold wigs. It was a wig shop. And before that, they sold bras and shoes. When I was six years old, you could go upstairs to get last season's shoes. My father, when he was a boy, came here with his mother to get shoes. This place has nothing to do with your standing before the Lord. This people however, have an equal standing before the Lord. If we believe the gospel because of the grace of God, if we belong to Him, we have a unity in the truth. And as long as we are holding fast the Scripture without the cliff notes, without the footnotes, without the expressions, without the commentaries, without all the ideologies that are pressed upon us and, and, imp- and, and imp- bothering us from the outside... We will all come to the same understanding of who God is and who Christ is. And in that focus, as we keep each other on task to that focus, we will joyfully serve one another. And in doing so, this is our spiritual act of worship. Why do we get together? So that we may encourage one another in the faith and meet each other's needs in the process. We're so backward in the United States of America, whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between, whether you're pretty or ugly or who knows, it doesn't matter. We're so backward in America when it comes to the Christian faith and life as the church of Christ that, that we fake it. See, Some of you looked at me weird. Like, what does he mean puts on the smile? You put on the smile. Don't pretend that you're putting on a smile that you're not putting on a smile, rather. Because if you really get to the... I mean, yeah, I can laugh at something funny in the midst of something real. I mean, I tell jokes at funerals, folks. It's the only way I can get through them. So we can laugh in the midst of great pain. But we come to the table of being the church... And we're so backward that we lie to ourselves and we lie to one another that we're afraid to make our needs known. We're afraid because we look weak. We're afraid sometimes to tell people what we're really going through or what we really have uh, what we really have or don't have, or what we really need or don't need, or what we really think or don't think, because we're scared of the backlash of people thinking differently from us, because we put the idea forward that we're great and everything's awesome, and life is perfect, and the person's looking at us, go, man, I wish my life could be as perfect as theirs, and I wouldn't have to pretend, and we're all just actors. You know what the Greek word transliterated into English for actor is? Hypocrite. That's what it means, actor. Beloved, let's not be actors. Let's not pretend that we know the joy of the Lord. Let's not pretend. Let's be honest. Peter was honest when he wrote his first epistle. He was honest. John was honest when he dictated the angst of Jesus Christ. In the Last Supper, Jesus didn't say, You know what, guys? Everything's good. I'm going to take a little trip. going to be a little bumpy, but it's going to be great. All right, see you on the other side. Y'all hold out now. Here's some hot dogs. No, he says, I am overcome with angst. I am burdened beyond imagination. Now, here's the crazy thing. I get nervous going to the dentist or to the doctor or to the tag office or to the DMV or wherever I have to go stand in a line. I get nervous thinking, oh, what's going to happen? What's the worst that can happen? I have to wait. I, I mean, you know. Why does that cause us anxiety? Jesus knew everything that was about to come upon his shoulders. He knew the burden of wrath, eternal and divine wrath, that was about to be shaken over his body. He understood because he is God He understood the the, the totality of what the prophets talked about when it said from Isaiah, when God said through Isaiah, I will crush Him. I will destroy Him. He knew what it meant. When He was taken into custody, He knew what it meant in the prophets when it said that He would be unrecognizable as a man. You understand that? He was beaten so badly, He did not look human. And that's not to draw upon our sympathy. Jesus doesn't look for sympathy. He knew. And He expressed it in the fact that I'm full of angst. What did He ask His disciples to do? Pray. What did they do? Sleep. Why? Because that's all they could do. That's all they could do. Sleep. So Jesus didn't lie. So what is the lie? The lie is part of our sin nature. The lie is part of establishing some sense of righteousness in our own understanding of ourselves that, you know what, I don't want to admit that I'm having trouble. I don't want to admit that I don't know. I don't want to admit that I was wrong. I don't want to admit I don't you know, so then why is our, what's our purpose? That's what I'm coming back to. What's our purpose? Our purpose is to see the picture of perfection in the face of Christ. And our purpose is to understand that our whole reason for being together today as the body of Christ is to be reminded of the perfection of Christ and to be reminded that everything in the Bible points to that and everything in the Bible, including the imperatives, including the things that we must do because we are in Christ, are to show us... Two things. One is to bring us to the understanding that there is no perfection in us of our own doing because we could never make it work. I'm going to show you that this week and next week in the fall. And then secondly is to show us the perfection of Christ is our only joy. And when we strive to understand this more and to grow in this more and to be honest, we're able to do the work of the ministry that God's called us to. So the the story's not changed. And I know that for some of us, I think, is he preaching the same? Is this the 10th week of the same sermon in Genesis 1 and 2? Sounds like that, doesn't it? But beloved, I'm not a creative person when it comes to exposition because I am too creative. And I can put a 40-point outline together with illustrations, jokes, and anecdotes all day long. And you would be entertained. And you would leave going, I really enjoyed that. I don't want you to say, I really enjoyed that. I want you to go, wow. Not, that was amazing oratory. I want you to go, wow. My God is awesome. Wow. Thank you for your grace. Wow. I need to share this with my brothers and sisters. I need to share life with my brothers and sisters. You know, you can't fabricate life together, right? People try to do that all the time. You just create life together. You can't make people intimate. They have to desire it. Beloved, we don't want to be intimate with God. He has to cause it. He has to be intimate with us. Chapter 2, Genesis. I just want you to hear the text again. The whole text, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no brush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man. I want you to see this picture. Listen to these words and see this picture. The the Lord formed the man from the dust of the dirt and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Eden's the land. In the center of that is a garden. He planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. He put them in the garden. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then the descriptives. All life flows out of Eden. Remember last week, the presence of God and the power of God. This is the picture here, even in creation, of God's absolute power as the life giver. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. Where there is gold. Gold is important in the worship of God in the temple and the tabernacle. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and God put him in the garden... To work it and to keep it. And we learned that two to three weeks ago, that that is a a reference to worship. Just like the temple, just like the priest, they worked and kept the tabernacle, the presence of God. They worked and kept up the ability to have the presence of God in symbol, in shadow, and that that is worship. And we looked at the Old Testament references of how that is worship in its context. And the Lord God commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die and that is a prophetic word by the way Then the Lord said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds, and to the heavens, and to the beasts of the fields. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, the Lord took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her and gave her to the man. And then the man said, This is at last the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He shall be called woman. For she was taking taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now we went through this text last week and the week before, and there's some things that just need to be pulled out. First, as I want you to understand that nothing's changed. I've said this already, but I'm going to say it again. Nothing's changed. This is a picture of the creation of the world and everything in it. This is a a story, a short little tiny story of this magnificent, powerful reality of God speaking into being all things. And it is written so that we may have the outline of the entire Bible. That God is the one who is and who alone is is self-sufficient and eternal, and that God in all of his power has caused all things that are to be, and that only God has the power to do that, and only God has the power and the authority to call or to make what he makes good, that in and of itself it is not good, except that he calls it good. And then everything else that we see in creation, God separating darkness from light, separating waters to land, creating in the separation of these things a fit habitat for life, creating life and separating life according to its kind that it may flourish and thrive and reveal His glory. And then creating out of that ground man, distinct, purposeful, powerful. And so here, we see the gospel. That's why it is written, the gospel. To see the gospel and to understand exactly what we're supposed to do when we read the rest of the text, the rest of the Old Testament, and looking into the New Testament, we are able to see that this is a picture of perfection in a continual way. We continue to see the picture of perfection. So I'm going to walk through this. The perfect creation. God is not changing His story here. God is not coming to a place where He's all of a sudden deciding to share some new information. He's still revealing Himself in the gospel. He's still revealing Himself in the way that the the Word is, is, is showing His power and the gospel of Christ in everything that He's made. And that God alone will take and make and put things where He wants them to be. And that only if God, and in His presence, puts people in His presence, shall they live. So this perfect creation reveals that a part of it is a perfect humanity. A perfect humanity. Some people argue that Adam and Eve and their creation were righteous. That's not true. Only God is good. Only God is righteous. They were innocent of evil. They did not know evil. They had not sinned. They had not fallen from, if you will, the glory of God. But they were to fall. That is why they were made. To show that everything that is created when left to itself, will choose itself over the promises of God. And that only the power of God can overcome that. Only the power of God can keep life. Only the power of God can maintain goodness. And that God never intended to create something righteous. He is righteous. So that what God credits his righteousness to something, that thing also is righteous. Some people would argue if Adam and Eve, and I used to believe this, I remember being a kid thinking, man, if they had just not eaten that fruit, how good the world would be. You know, that's a logical thing. Some of your children have probably come to you and said something like that. But that wasn't the intention. Let's be careful to understand the sovereignty of God and His unchangeable nature and the fact that God has purposed all things. God created the world that He would redeem a fallen people for Himself through His Son who would become human and substitute Himself for them as the object of wrath and the object of righteousness to impute His righteousness to us and we impute our guilt to Him. This is the exchange that Paul talks about in Romans. This is what Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep and I take my life up again. I give it willingly. So this picture here, we see this perfect creation continuing. We see this perfect humanity that God has made and called good, innocence. We see this perfect place that we really emphasized last week where it had a good and useful purpose. Eden had a good and useful purpose in its practical Substance. It was a good place to walk with the Lord. It was a good place to to eat. It was a good place to live. Out of this garden came all life for the world rivers and trees and everything that is necessary. God created out of dust the vegetation, the animals, and the humans. But yet, God's purpose from the same dust. Is different for all things, but they all point to one common truth, and that is God Himself is the author and the creator of life. Thus, God in Himself is the only one who can grant and give eternal life. A perfect place. A perfect place, like the garden in Eden, is where we can see God's power and eat of His provision and live forever. And in doing so, we are thankful, and this is is the picture of perfect worship. What is worship but walking with God in thankfulness? What is worship but to the praise of His glorious grace? This is review. We've, we've seen this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And some people say, well, I don't understand how the fall and, and all the wicked things of the world, I don't understand that all this stuff was the purpose and the plan of God. You does not have to understand why the Bible just says that it is. You see? The Bible just teaches that it is. So let's not divorce the gospel from the narrative of the Old Testament. Let's keep things together and congruent. This is a perfect place of worship. Even in Ephesians, Paul says that God in His electing grace and His sovereign love and His power has created a people for Himself who He has foreknown. The word there is foreknown is to be loved eternally. Before we were, God loved us. And the love of God is demonstrated one way and only one way to His people, and that is through the death of Jesus Christ, His Son. And that is revealed to us by the word written down by the prophets and the apostles, and that is caused in us, we believe that, because the Spirit of God gives us understanding and the resolution to know it. Not become experts on the topics, but to rest in the person. See, salvation is not resting in the topic of salvation of grace, of redemption, of atonement. Salvation, faith, is knowing and resting in the person who has done all these things. Life is not being in the place of Eden. Life is being in the presence of the one who is the Eden maker, the life giver. So this perfect worship here in this perfect garden, in this perfect world, in this perfect people, innocent without stain, without blemish, without wrinkles. starting to sound familiar now. God had provided it all. Why? Why did God provide Eden as a picture of showing His presence is the only place of joy? That's what I talked about in the introduction. How do we find that presence? Where is this Eden? It's right here in the written word. And then it's multiplied when we're together. I want you to hear that. So many times it was. I just don't see it. I just don't see I don't see how the church is supposed to grow my joy. Sit under the Word together and you see it. You'll see it. If it's taught rightly, you'll see it. If the Word of God opens itself up to you by the Spirit, you'll see it. And you realize that our... Worship is supposed to be done together. That our joy is supposed to be experienced together. That gratitude and praise is supposed to be done together. God purposed it all. Why? So that we could have a good place to live? So that we could have an incredible life? No, that He would be glorified in it. Why? Because He alone is worthy of all glory. Like brother prayed this morning, you know, after the singing. It is about Him. It is about His name. It's about His glory. It's about He being the only one worthy of praising and worshiping. God promises life is only found in Himself. Now imagine being Adam in the garden for a moment and being told by the Lord, this is the ground you will work. And keep, and this is your act of worship. And from it, my power will sustain your life forever. You see this picture? And we believe, by faith, this is a literal place that God made. But we know also, just like the promises He made temporally throughout the entirety of the Old Testament history, they always had two purposes. He promised Abraham a boy. But that promise was Jesus ultimately. Fulfilled temporally in the Son, but eternally in Christ. Through whom the nations will be blessed. Because through the Son comes the Son of God. But imagine working this ground. Imagine knowing from where you came and then being told to tend to the very ground that you came from. Now that's a humbling experience. Yeah, I just made you out of this dirt. I want you to take care of it for me. I want you, creature, to take care of the source of your existence. Now that's just something to think about. What a constant reminder for however long it was, a few hours maybe, I don't know. I don't know but what a reminder to be working now when's the last time you dug in the flower garden and thought to yourself this is where I'm headed this is where I came from to dust I shall return never now I've had thoughts of that before during funerals and things of that nature but I mean it's not something we just do oh look at this new plant yep I'm going to be plant food one day. Being there in the garden, this command to work and to keep is a command to worship, to constantly be reminded of where we come from and where we're headed. And the fact that God has created us from the dust and that we have, as you will see in chapter 3, the promise to return to the dust, that we will die. Except that the only except that we are connected to the life-giver, to the Eden-bringer, to the presence of God in Jesus Christ himself. And beloved, I believe that that's a great opportunity for worship. I believe it's a humbling. Now see, a guy like me, I don't need to think about that a lot. So I shove it off. My mortality is not something I want to consider. I like to consider it in the context of glorification. Can't wait. It's gonna be with Jesus when I feel stressed. Good Lord, help me! But if you come with a knife, I'm gonna hurt you, or try anyway. I'm gonna fight. So I try to I try to push that away. You know what? My mortality. When I think about it, I'm already 80. I can I time travel. Do you know that? That's it. Everybody's leaving now. But I do. I can sit down and in just a few minutes. I'm 80. Just a few minutes. I mean, here I am. Lost a lot of friends who are my age and just a few years older than me and some that are 15 years. Listen, the last 10 years of my life have gone by like that. Literally feels like a year. 10 years ago this October, we met in our living room over on Park Avenue. And Grace Truth Church started 10 years ago. And it feels like yesterday. So I don't focus on that a lot. But when I read this and I think about Adam and I think about his command to work the soil, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm confronted with the reality that when I think about my mortality, I shouldn't time travel and and fall into despair. I should remember and thank God for His life-giving power. I should be reminded of the good news that this life isn't what it's about. I should be be encouraged to live life to the fullest this very moment. This is the only moment that matters right now because this is what reality is. And every second that passes brings another reality. What we think or want or desire or worry about is going to take place is not guaranteed. What is guaranteed is here, this moment right now. And if we worry about what did happen just a few minutes ago or what was said, rather than the now, we'll never be alive. And the moments that we have in this life are best lived in the knowledge of grace. Best lived with the people of grace. Best lived with a clear and sober understanding of our existence. And understanding that only by the power of God's amazing creation and redemption and grace are we able to even have hope. And it doesn't matter. Of course we pray things will go well. Of course we encourage one another. Of course we try to work to better our circumstances, if, you know, if we're hungry, let's try to get some food. But it's not the point of life. It's not the point of life. The point of life is Christ, His name and His glory, which is revealed in the salvation of His people, which is per, uh, pictured perfectly in the creation of the world. What an opportunity to worship when we think about the frailty of life. But imagine thinking about the frailty of life without the gospel. Then we time travel. We either go back or we go forward. and We never live. We just sit in a state of someplace else in our mind and it affects everything we do And our joy is obsolete. Beloved, there's one thing that destroys the joy of the creature. God said it here. You have everything you need to live. But there's a tree. There is a tree. And from its fruit comes death. When you eat of this fruit Adam, your joy is gone. When you eat of this fruit Adam, your life is gone. When you eat of this fruit Adam, I am gone. When you eat of this fruit Adam, this glory is gone. When you eat of this fruit Adam, you will no longer see me. When you eat of this fruit Adam, your progeny and everything in it shall decay to the dust. When you eat of this fruit, See, that was prophetic. I say that because God told Adam what would happen. When you eat of this, you will die. So sin destroys the joy because it destroys the ability to be in the presence of God. And the garden of life is cut off. And the only one who can restore that connection is God himself. Man couldn't keep it, and man can't reconnect it. You see the point? And we'll talk about this more in detail when we get to chapter 3. But the power of sin is disastrous. You ever thought about that? See, I I think we've watered down the idea of sin, missing the mark of righteousness, missing the mark of trusting in the promises and the power and the provision and the purposes of God. We've missed the mark. Why? Because just like I started out the sermon today, we are inundated with all these external pressures of ideas and philosophies of religion and Christianity and theology and all these other things, and we're not in the text of Scripture. And we're not together in the text of Scripture enough to be fed enough. I have a friend who years ago when she was in business, she and her Husband would go to the mall. They're very, very, very frugal people. And he's passed away now and she's retired. But they would go to the mall and, and she had a business meeting or something. She'd go to the food court in the mall. Instead of going to a restaurant, let's go, let's just go to the food court and have tea. And if you were hungry, you didn't buy food there, she would just go around and she'd get the free samples. So she'd get the free sample from all the different places and come back with a little hors d'oeuvre tray. And that worked for them. And they never, you know, the people, they never called on that they were just eating off the free samples three days a week. But that's what they did, and it was, it was fine. So I thought, you know, one day I'm going to do that. I'm going to go get me some free samples at the mall. And I got my free sample, and I put it on a plate, and I got my other free sample. And by the time I got to the end, I only had like seven pieces of chicken. And when I say pieces of chicken, you know how it is. It's the same chicken Seven different places, seven different seasonings, same chicken. It's probably the same bird, you know. But I got to the table and I thought, this is cheap, but it's not filling. So then I had to go spend $10 to get a big plate of chicken. Five pounds of rice. Uh-huh. You know how it is. It doesn't work for me. Because when I nibble and dabble, I'm hungry. Beloved, sometimes I believe we nibble and dabble in the Word of God and we wonder why we're starving. We've forgotten that sin has taken us away from the food and the sustenance of God's presence. And so in an attempt to try to reconcile that, we make little of sin. We don't do a whole lot of thinking. And we should not be uh, just, oh, how do I say this without sounding off? We should not forever consider sin constantly. We should consider grace constantly. But grace, by definition, means what? That sin no longer counts. But sin has destroyed life. And the power of sin is defeated by the eating of the bread of life. And how in the world is the bread of life going to be ours again? When, as we'll see in chapter 3 that God has separated us from His presence, from that food, because Jesus came to be food. John chapter 4, John chapter 6. You know I'm going to bring John into everything. John chapter 4, Jesus talks to the woman at Sychar, and He tells her that He is the water that she so desperately thirsts for, that the rivers flowing from Eden are still flowing and they're welling up to eternal life. Woman, open your eyes and see. And what does the woman do in her humanity and her religion? She goes, oh, I'm trying. I'm worshiping the hardest I can. I'm even... Started going to the temple at Mount Gerizim, which is an exact replica of the temple in Mount Jerusalem, and we're doing the exact same thing that you guys are as Jews, but it's still, I am still thirsty. You see it? You see the gospel? She argues theology, she argues doctrine, she argues the extent of of, of redemption, she argues genealogy, she argues historicity, she argues all the precepts of Moses, she argues and argues and argues, and Jesus basically says nothing. He basically says nothing you do is going to satisfy your thirst until you drink of me and the water that I, that I bring. <sighs> and then she tries to figure out how she's going to get water from a man who doesn't have a bucket to dip it. Such is the plague of humanity. Always trying to be prepared against that which is sovereign and all-powerful. Beloved, you can't be prepared except that God has prepared you for life. And when the woman goes back in the midst of that conversation, at the end of that conversation, she says, well, she resolves all of a sudden. She goes... I have no hope but Messiah. And all these things that I've been trying to work through and prepare myself to understand and all the stuff that I've been trying to do to perfect my way into the presence of God, the only hope that I have is Messiah is going to teach it all to me. And then Jesus says, the one of whom you speak I am. And immediately her eyes were opened. And she passes the disciples on her way back to Sychar, screaming and going nuts, going, Oh, my goodness, I met a man. Could he be Messiah? He told me everything I've ever done. And the disciples come back because they went to get food. And they come back, and they sit there with Jesus, and they don't say anything because they were really... I mean, that was wrong of him to be sitting there with a Samaritan. And it was wrong of him to be sitting there talking to a woman. Socially, it was wrong. But he's their rabbi. We don't talk back to teacher. But oh my goodness, around the campfire when Jesus went off to pray, can you believe him? <laughs> you know, Can you believe he did that? But they come back, hey teacher, we got you a sandwich. We got you something to eat. He says, I have food that you know not of. And what, is that? what does John write? They talked amongst themselves, who brought him food? And he answers them in that same statement. He says, I came to be food. Don't believe me? Read it. I came to be the bread. John chapter 6, he says the same thing again. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will not have eternal life. Unless you're in Eden forever, never eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not have life. I am the righteousness of God. I am the God of creation myself in human flesh. And what I will do in my power and what I will do in my justice and what I will do in my righteousness, I will save you, my people, from your sins. The point of creation is that God, throughout all of His work, would save His people from their sins. And the power of Eden was destroyed by sin, but the power of sin is destroyed by the bread of life in the living water, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about that for a second. Think about these parallels here. We've got the Garden of Eden, the presence of God, the presence of life, the state of innocence, and then we've got the Garden of Gethsemane where things really come together. Things go crazy and fall apart. The, the order and the, and the purpose and the, and the power and all the focus falls apart in Eden because man is in charge of it. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, God in sovereign, God in the flesh is in charge of redemption. And the true Eden is standing there sweating blood. And the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane stands up and says, Not my will, but yours. And he walks out and says, Behold my accuser. Who kisses him. To show the authorities who to arrest. And these knuckleheads are asleep, right? Right? They wake up. And Peter's going to try to make up for the fact he wasn't praying, shh, pull out a sword and whack off in the ear. Ha! Ah, you're taking Jesus. Cheesy B movie, right? An old kung fu movie from the 70s. Ah, I know what I can do. I can stop this. No, you can't stop this. Because the death of Christ is the point of creation. Without Christ, there is no life. The power of sin is defeated by the Son of God. God bestowed all things good before the first humans. He showed them everything. He gave them everything. Then God burdened all things upon the second Adam, Jesus Christ. All things. All things for the sake of the elect. Adam, when he saw everything that God had offered, all life, all perfection, all glory, he traded all these things for his fleshly interests. And Jesus Christ traded glory and became flesh in order to satisfy the wrath of God. Adam, in all of his innocence, could not keep righteousness. Could not stand before God. Adam fell, as you'll see. He fell. Eve fell. Humanity fell. And Adam could not keep himself upright, even in innocence. But Christ, who was innocent and also righteous, could not be. you got to listen to what I'm saying here. He would not succumb to death. He laid down his life in death and then he took it up again because he is the righteousness of God. Death cannot hold him. Death is the sentence of sin. Christ had no sin. Christ died in the place of sinners. He himself was not sinful. So he came back to life. Adam was lost. He lost everything. He lost life and all of his progeny, everyone else. Christ, the second Adam, found them all. Found all for whom he died. Bestowed his atoning work to his people. To their account, he gave them righteousness. We see in Romans 5 where Paul would say, Through one man, all men die. Through the second man, through the second Adam, and through one man, all men might be. All might be made alive. This perfect redemption. See, when we look at the garden, when we look at Adam and Eve being created, there's some things we need to just really grasp as we close today. Some things that will put the gospel in perspective. You know, why do we need to know this? Why do we need to know... And, I, and I've seen people try in biology... <laughs> To deal with the rib thing and all this other kind of listen, it's a picture here. It doesn't matter how God did it. The point of God revealing this is to show Christ. And there's a thousand pictures here. And it's not my creativity, beloved. Read the scripture, it'll pop out. It'll pop out so quickly. Creation was insufficient for Adam. It was insufficient for Adam's joy, as we'll see. It was insufficient, but moreover, there was nothing that God had created that was like Adam. So as God gave Adam the task of looking and observing, as the first biologist, looking and observing at all the creatures that existed and coming up with names appropriate for their character and purpose and movement and things of that nature, at the end of it all, it's sort of like Adam turned and went, Am I the only one like me? Am I the only one like me? Because there was no beast or creature in all of creation that was sufficient to be a pair for Adam, to be a mate for Adam, to be a helper for Adam, to be a soulmate for Adam, to be like him. And in the same way, when we look at sinful humanity, there's no one in all of humanity that is like God except the God-man, who is God. Even in all their goodness, no animal would do. Out of Adam, then, must come a suitable companion. If we're going to have something that is like Adam, then of his essence, then it's going to have to come out of Adam. So God puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib out of the rib. He forms woman. Woman means out of man. And then he puts the two together, puts them in the garden, gives the woman to the man, not as property, as flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, as his own body. Equally. And so Adam, out of himself, by the power of God, Adam couldn't do it. God puts Adam to sleep. And out of Adam comes a suitable companion, one who can help him, one can, who can multiply with him, one who can look like him, one who can love him, one who can know him. A man and his dog, that's a tight relationship, but it's not his wife. A woman and her cat, pretty equal. Her husband and the cat, eh, it's a toss-up right <laughs> So God made Adam to sleep. In his slumber, God tore open his flesh and out of his body created a woman. Adam was prepared for his bride in sleep. He named her Eve. He called her flesh of his own flesh. He called her his own body. This is the great mystery of Jesus Christ and his bride, beloved. This is next week's sermon. I won't get into it a whole lot of it today. This is the mystery of the gospel in marriage. This is why marriage exists. This is why creation exists. This is why the world exists, so that we can see it. Jesus Christ calls His church, His body, His bride. For out of His body, broken and blood spilled, come her, living forever. Jesus laid down His life and in His death, His slumber, a glorious and great goodness came from Him for His people. His perfection, His spotlessness, His righteousness. So in order for God to have a people for Himself in humanity, He had to become humanity. And out of His body is born His people's righteousness. His people's forgiveness. So the church was created for Christ as Eve was created for Adam. Christ was prepared for the church just as Adam was prepared for the church. And Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 11 of his first letter to them, or what we know as 1 Corinthians, the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So there's this picture of God giving the Son who gives himself for the church. Now, we've already gone to Ephesians 5. We've already seen that. We were there last week. We know this picture, but we're going to see this picture so clearly next week that it's going to almost numb us. Because we need to take away all of this overwhelming prior learning about man-woman and husband-wife relationships. We need to understand The simple grace of Christ and the gospel and the picture of the creation of the first wedding. The first wedding is here. The first marriage is here. And it's just like the creation of light. See, John in his gospel makes it clear, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Him was the light of the life of men Jesus says the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. So to, to see Christ is to see the light of the glory of God. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4 that the light of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ, that God shines it into us in His power, in His creative power. So we see all of these pictures through all the apostolic writing of this first few chapters of creation. As the point of it. Flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. In that redemptive sense, we are told that we are the body of Christ. That we are the righteousness of God. That we are a royal priesthood. That we are the children of God. That He is proud to call us brothers, sisters, siblings. That we've been adopted that we've been raised to life with Christ, that we await like in the consummation of glory, we will be together forever with our husband. The word there, andros, which means head. We'll be together with him. We will share in his glory. We will share in his stature. We will share in his righteousness. We will share... All things is one body. All things. This is the point of this text. Beloved, well, don't miss it. Don't bog down in all this other mess that has usurped the revelation of God in Scripture. If my biology textbook is necessary for me to understand Genesis, Genesis is trash. I want you to hear that. As much as I love science, as much as I love the amazing knowledge of how intricately things work in life, I don't I don't see the gospel except when I see the Lord through the pages of scripture. And if I don't know the scripture, nothing else I look at is going to undergird that joy. Perfection is proven to be only by God's provision and power. This picture of marriage, this picture of creation, this picture of perfection is as old as time. And it is Jesus Christ who is the image of God in humanity. It is Jesus Christ who is the Creator. It is Jesus Christ who is Eden. It is Jesus Christ who is life. I am the way and the truth and the life, he says. So rest in this knowledge. this This even establishes how we relate to one another and how we relate to other people in life, how we relate to unbelievers and believers. This gospel message sets the tone and the outline for the life that we live today. To the praise of His glorious grace, As objects of mercy, unmerited favor through the life that we have to live and the life that we have eternally promised through Christ. So, in that we rejoice, in that we sleep. Let's pray. Father, help us to make clarity on these things. Help us to see the gospel. Help us to see Christ more and more and more and to look at Him. Father, help me to not be so downtrodden so quickly. Father, help us to realize that the burdens that we carry are to be carried to You because Christ has bore the burden of your justice and your wrath. He's bore the burden of temptation in His flesh like none of us ever have. For He never sinned. He never gave in. He never desired to. He always wanted to fulfill His, your perfect plan. And fulfill his perfect life for the salvation of your people, his sheep, his bride. So Lord, no matter what is happening inside of our minds or around us in our homes or in this world, Lord, help us to put our hope and our focus on on your revelation. And not to, to let this world do its thing, for you have orchestrated that for your purposes. Lord, help us to not get caught up in these things. Teach us humility, teach us quietness, teach us to work with our hands without getting noticed, teach us to in, interact intimately and to quit trying to be the answer or the opinionator of all things. Lord, give us peace. Rekindle in us a peace that is ours in Christ so that we might live this day in joy, that we might be able to worship without all these other things weighing us down. And Lord, as we look at the world, as we grow to understand its complexities more and more and get excited about it, Father, remind us of the simple story of a true creation that You have made so that You could have Your people justly in Your presence forever. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, church.